Okay, good morning, everybody. I invite you to take a seat. Seems really echoey. It's all good. Good morning. Uh, okay, good morning, everybody. Um, Nice to see you all this morning. If I have not met you before, my name is uh, Gareth Jones. I have the, just the joy and privilege of serving as one of the elders here, along with uh, Mitch and uh, Mo and, and John. Um, my family is, I have a wonderful wife, Tiffany, and our two little girls, Winsome and Solace, as well. Um, I was just chatting with Stephanie's parents, and they said, how long have you been here? And I said, 13 years. And that's just been a really gift to our family to be a part of a community for that long, and uh, so thank you for being part of our family. Um, This morning we're continuing our series in Genesis 2 and 3, and it's also the first Sunday of Advent, and I just kind of want to say at the beginning, it's not an easy text um, that I've been given to preach. Uh, Thank you, John. Thank you, Pastor Mitch. Um, It is pretty dark, so I... You know, as John mentioned last week, I thought it was wise to say this, which is we do encourage you, obviously, to bring your full selves into this, into this morning. But if you do need to step out for whatever reason, um, you're, of course, welcome to. At the end of the service, um, as Mayan said, there'll be people in the back who would love to pray with you and for you. It is appropriate, though. It's appropriate that we're handling a heavy text at this time of year because it's Advent. And uh, the first Sunday of Advent is today. Um, The season in the church calendar of waiting for the coming of Christ. And we wait in the darkness. So let's read the passage now that the message is based upon. It should be on the screen. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. Seems a little small, my fault. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. So Yahweh Elohim called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So Yahweh Elohim asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. So this morning... This morning, we have, we have three points. Three points. Point number one, Advent begins in the dark. Point number two, a fearless inventory of darkness. Point number three, where are you? One, Advent begins in the dark. Two, a fearless inventory of darkness. And three, where are you? Okay, so point one, Advent begins in the dark. In 1966... Simon and Garfunkel released their highly acclaimed studio album, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. The last track of the album, do you know what it is? 
Silent Night, 7 o'clock news. 7 o'clock news slash Silent Night. And as we heard this morning and sang with our hands, it starts out Silent Night. And Paul Simon actually says this is the one song he wished he had written, Silent Night. Starts out beautiful, two-part harmony, but slowly, as you know the song, the voice of a reporter overshadows the singing of Silent Night, reading out the headlines of the 7 o'clock news. It is a critique, of course, a critique of the idealized pastoral vision of Christmas coziness. How can this vision exist amidst the harsh realities of our fragmented and fractured world? As the song progresses, the recognizable harmonies of Simon and Garfunkel fade as the reporter's voice gets louder and louder, more pronounced and more clear. And so this contrast in volumes insinuates the prevalence of darkness over light. There can be no silent night, no calm, nothing bright, only chaos, only disruption. Uh, In 2019, there was a cover of this song released, and I want us to listen to that one. This is by Phoebe Bridgers featuring Fiona Apple and Matt Berenger, who's the lead singer of The National. Let's listen to this. printed those out. So thank you, Rhonda, for maybe sharing that with our ASL community, the lyrics as well. So you can just see the contrast is pretty stark. I think the point is pretty clear. It's kind of hard to maintain sort of a still and magical sense of holiday togetherness when the darkness creeps in as the seven o'clock news does and insists on bearing its weight upon us. Now, maybe just be clear, I'm not implying any political or social statements. Um, You can go and look up the lyrics after as well if you caught a few of them. 
but it's, this is someone's personal artistic expression, and I, but I think it comes across quite crystal clear. So you can just sense that, the droning, that engendered disgust in the voices, it's not bright. So I think they do capture, the artists capture a certain vibe that's shadowing, that's clouding even our entry point into this season of Advent. And, and I actually think that they're doing us a favor. Um, I, I really do think that probably, as has already been expressed this morning, we enter Christmas, we enter Advent this season sort of feeling this, the volume of the 7 o'clock news, a little louder and louder. And, you know, it's not just Silent Night, it's not just Phoebe Bridger's just think of some others, okay? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Think about these songs. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. All our troubles will be miles away. You know, it's just kind of hard not to snicker at that. Um, or even O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I think this song's origins are traced to the ninth century. It's a 1,200-year-old song. Um, but we can't not associate it this year with the horrors and the crisis that's happening in the Middle East. So I know that that's just on the backdrop of our minds as we enter into, into service this morning. It's not a very difficult argument to make. Pastor and author Fleming Rutledge, in a series of sermons aptly titled Advent Begins in the Dark, where we kind of stole that slogan from, um, she's an Episcopalian pastor in New York City. She would suggest that this is precisely the place that we should be. She writes, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we're not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. There's a real concern there, that Christmas would be distinguished, that it would be diminished, it would be lost to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. Advent is a season where we cry out to God from the darkness. We do ask, and it's appropriate to ask, and God welcomes it, to say, where are you? Are you deaf? Don't you see what's happening? We're consumed. And Moses and Laura said that in Isaiah 64. We keep company with the writers of the Bible when we feel this way. Psalm 80, I believe it is. Psalm 80, verse 4 and 5. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. It's not cozy. It's uncomfortable. And we should resonate with that angst, lest we diminish the weightiness of Advent. And so what we ought to do then is is take a fearless inventory of the darkness, which brings us to our passage today. So point number two, Advent requires a fearless inventory of the darkness. Um, Using all the sort of mid-century examples here, 1966 and now 1958, a young Nigerian author, uh, Chinua Achebe, released his, this is actually his first novel. Many of you maybe have read this. It's considered a classic of the 20th century. Um, At the age of 28, Um, I'm still working on my first novel at the age of 36. He wrote, Things Fall Apart. Uh, And in part, it was inspired by W.B. Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, which if you read this poem, you'll sort of, you'll pick up on all sorts of like lines in Aaron Sorkin movies and such. So here's the first part of the poem I want to read to us. 
Yeats writes, and this is quoted right at the beginning of Things Fall Apart. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So when I think of the darkness, when I think of the pervasive nature of sin in our world, I think of this book, I think of this line, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. So many consider this book to be um, one of the most important books of the 20th century um, of post-colonial African literature. What it does is it tells the story of exactly that, things falling apart, the personal and the familial through the protagonist, Akonkwo, to the cultural and tribal narratives of the Igbo people and ultimately to the colonial legacy of the British Empire. Things fall apart at every level. Uh, I was listening to an interview, a couple of interviews by Chinua Achebe, and he said he still, to this day, he's, he's older now, obviously, but he, he said, you know, I still get um, letters from people all over the world. And he references, he's like, I got a letter from a... Korean women's college, and they wrote to me and they said, this is, my, this is our experience too. We were colonized by the Japanese. So there's something that picks up there that is something that, that resonates that's universal. Further to that point, Chinua Achebe, in an address to the Library of Congress in 2009, he spoke about why he chose to write about things falling apart. He said, Well, you know, there's no point writing about a hero who is an angel. That's not of any value to us because we're not angels. But we can recognize a hero who has a flaw. And I I just love this next next line. Because, you know, you think of the great literary people. Like, you could have hit a thesaurus on this. (laughs) You said the same same, uh, adjective twice here. But unless we are very, very stupid, we know we have flaws. Um, Achebe's book is, and, and it's a short read. Um, and I say that I tried to read it before delivering this sermon in the months I had to prepare, but uh, alas, I just read the Yeats poem. Okay. <laughs> so Achebe's book, like I'm making the point, it is a fearless inventory of the darkness. Now here's maybe one for you millennials out there. Um, Walter White, from the great TV show Breaking Bad. Tiff and I figured we're the last people ever to watch this show. Um, we just finished. It was amazing. Um, so, spoilers, but he doesn't look like this at the end. If you want to go to the next photo, this shows that it's sort of from one, two, three on the top, four, five, six. You can see, so he goes from high school chemistry teacher turned methamphetamine drug kingpin, and he slowly transforms. It's a fascinating character study um, throughout this multi-season series. But you can just see this darkness. It seems to almost just transform his whole body. And you're just seeing his face, but his, his posture changes as the, as the series goes on. And this is the darkness that we are um, prone to reproducing, to having made manifest in our lives, and it can consume us, and very much can, as you can see from the photos, it can shape us. 
So what happens to Okonkwo, the Igbo people, the British Empire, the Walter White, is what's happening to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. And I'd argue that we also see it in ourselves. So I invite you to consider that connection. This is a presentation, Genesis 3, of an inventory of darkness, a framework for the way things get worse and worse and fall more and more apart. Things fall apart. It's about the cancerous nature of sin, mysteriously, progressively, and infectiously attacking our spiritual immune system. Cornelius Plantinga Jr., and I did not make that name up, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he puts it in this way. Sin has dug in and, like a tick, burrows deeper when we try to remove it. I like that, when we try to remove it. Okay, so within Genesis 3, we're going to look at three ways that sin digs in and things fall apart. First, things fall apart between us and Yahweh Elohim. Second, things fall apart within ourselves. And third, things fall apart between others and everything else. And I've put it as ABC. So this is point 2A, um, the curse of the educator in me. So first thing, things fall apart between us and Yahweh Elohim. Let's read verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, or as some passages say it, in the cool of the day. And they hid from Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. So things are falling apart here. God is walking in the evening breeze, and this is something that we're told he would have done quite, quite regularly. There's no reason to believe this was the first time he's doing this, kind of trying to come and find them out. This was a normal occurrence. And here, to walk, the original hearers of this, they would have picked up that this was an idiom for friendship. To walk means friendship. God walks in the garden at this time because he desires to have a relationship with us. And this is reflected in the vision of the tabernacle, actually, that we pick up in Leviticus 26, 11 to 12. I will place my residence among you and I will not reject you. I will walk among you. I desire relationship. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So the tabernacle stands for the grasping of being in right relationship with God, which is what we see here in the text. And this is what God is doing before Adam and Eve in the garden. Yahweh Elohim is walking. He wants a relationship. But this time, it's different, obviously. This time, there's an avoidance. There's a resistance. Adam and Eve hear him coming, and they hide. And they hide, interestingly enough, behind a tree. And if you've been sticking with us through this, this passage, that should ring a little bit of a bell in your mind. They're hiding behind a tree. Just earlier in Genesis, we hear that Yahweh Elohim is pronouncing that you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, except this one. But it's a sign of flourishing. These trees are given to, uh, for Adam and Eve to thrive. They're meant to experience shalom, but they're experiencing disruption. And this is what they choose to place as a barrier between themselves. The barrier that is actually a gift from God. And I think it's quite interesting that they, it's almost like they suspect that God has a, um, like a, singular plane, a singular plane of vision, as if, they're, as if they can hide behind something and not be seen from God. I think that we do this too. I, in my thinking on this, I think we do take good things 
from God and we can make them a barrier in our relationship with God. Interestingly enough, I think we can probably even take our relationship with God and maybe use that as a barrier for our relationship with God by refusing to see God um, as who he is, as a holy God. Yet we act as if God can't see. So that's the first one. Falls apart between us and God. Second, things fall apart, or 2B, things fall apart within ourselves. So when things have fallen apart with our vertical relationship, things fall apart in our horizontal relationships, or sorry, within ourselves. So Yahweh Elohim, verse 9, called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? So things fall apart with ourselves. They've fallen apart with God, and now they're falling apart with ourselves. And we notice that we're naked. So here, nakedness is actually an idiom. It's an idiom for guilt, shame, psychological dislocation, and a lack of ease with who we are. But just think about this. Adam says he's hiding because he's naked. But he's always been naked. There's an odd... Is an oddness to this. They're not necessarily afraid because they're naked. They're afraid because now their nakedness means something different. Their nakedness, which was how they were created, is now a source of shame. So their identity, their relationship with themselves, their self-concept is falling apart because their relationship with their maker has fallen apart. Instead of admitting their wrongs, they actually blame their nakedness. And this happens to us. Things fall apart because we slowly see how every aspect of our lives is in need of covering. And then we actually blame our nakedness for the reasons that we hide. We're not really willing to be vulnerable, to admit our nakedness, to admit where we need to be covered up. And so we hide. I think partly we hide because of our nakedness because I think deep down we're we're worried that we'll never be known and loved. I think to to be fully known, if we were, each one of us, if we were to be fully known, if somebody else was to take an inventory of our darkness, I think we feel like it would be impossible for them then to also love us. Okay, part 2C. Things fall apart with others and everything else. Genesis 3, verse 11. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So Yahweh Elohim asked the woman, Well, what have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. I know this has been coming up in community groups. I know it has in ours about there's a lot of things happening with gender in this whole section of the Bible and the whole Bible. And um, as we like to do here, reality, we say, come back next week. John's going to talk about that one. (laughs) I'm not quite going to handle it this morning. But um, it's important that that we dig into that a little bit. We can see here... The things, okay, things have fallen apart with us and God. Things have fallen apart within ourselves. 
and now things are falling apart with others and everything else. Let me just take you back before. Just earlier in this passage, we know that they're not entirely naked, okay? They have their fig leaves on. So (laughs) I did not provide a photo of that. Um, I I did Google it, though, and there's some really strange uh, visuals out there. Um, So... (laughs) Some commentators, actually, interestingly, some commentators suggest that um, the original audience would have actually found a lot of humor in this because the fig leaves were not these like dainty, um, like haute couture of the like middle ancient Near East. These they actually were unruly vegetation. They were like these really awkward, um, unwieldy foliage. Um, and so, interestingly, in our attempts to cover up, we actually and, and to establish a barrier between us and our closest next of kin, we actually look pretty awkward doing it. <laughs> and I think sometimes this maybe for us, maybe I'll just speak for myself, you know, it's like when you're, you know, like, I got to cover up for something like that. And then you just end up in your cover up, you look worse, like things just keep falling apart. Um, that's kind of what I think about when I think about the fig leaves, and I've casted out any other visual of fig-leaved-adorned people. Um, so Yahweh Elohim, this is a great line. Who told you that you were naked? Actually, God's whole line of questioning here is very, um, very beautiful and restorative, and we'll talk about it in a second. Um, in two weeks. Mitch will talk about that. (laughs) Um, So this is where it really falls apart, as you can see. He says in response, who told you you were naked? He says, the woman who you gave me. I guess really, it's a double whammy, right? He's saying, my wife, who my maker gifted me. Just previously, he was singing this poem, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's the reason. And you're the reason. It's this blaming of others. You did this. Um, and what does Eve say? I blame, I blame the snake, she says. If we can't blame a person, we'll surely blame anything else. In our relationship, even with the natural world, as we have learned over the last couple of weeks, there's a fracture in there. There's a consequence for our lack of repentance in our actions here. Meredith Klein puts it beautifully in this commentary. All efforts to conceal sin succeed only in exposing it. When you think about the fig leaves, our hiding, our... It's, it's quite... It's, it's, a real, uh, it's a real fail on the part of Adam and Eve. So when we take an inventory of that darkness, we see how much grasping for power, actually, there really is that's happening here. We try to hide, we try to cover up, we try to blame everything, anything, in an effort to avoid consequences. But things always fall apart. I want to return to Phoebe Bridgers. I'm not trying to throw any shade on her at all, on her artistic expression. But she released a statement um, accompanying the song that she released four years ago this time of year. And I think it speaks to this feeling 
this blaming, this inventory of darkness. She writes, Happy holidays to everyone whose family has been literally or figuratively torn apart by Donald Trump. And to my racist, xenophobic, misogynistic, hypocritical family members, and fill in the blank. But thanks, Fiona, Matt, Simon, and Garfunkel. Just leave that up for a second. I'm, I'm not critiquing her. I'm just saying there's obviously significant hurt here. Um, just to put that out into the world. But I'm just pointing out that we totally do this too. It just doesn't show up on stereo gum or pitchfork or anything. We, we do this too. We blame others. We blame political figures. We blame family. We point blame at the horrible evils in our world. And that's, that, that's part of the human experience. But I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that we're doing anything but identifying that the problem is us. The problem is always out there. So what do we do with this darkness? And this will bring us to a close. The third point, where are you? Uh, Let's return to Fleming Rutledge for this last point. So for us in this season of Advent, to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness. So to sit in solidarity with the Phoebe Bridgers of the world, and in that shadow of death, but, and this is, I think, what is so critical this time of year, is not to be consumed by the darkness, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. And we have great reason to expect the dawn. God always keeps his promises. He is always faithful. And I think if you're picking up on it, as I was really, really pleased to, it's really a joy to study this passage in greater depth, there's just this unshakable hope throughout this passage. And you can kind of see it in this line of questioning that, he, that God has. One thing we do at this, the school I work, with, work at is uh, we, we are, we're a restorative justice school. And I'm really proud of that um, because I think it tells a little bit of the hope and a little bit of the character of God. And being the role that I have, I'm a vice principal. So actually, I, I, I do mourn a lot. I sit in a lot of shadows of darkness in my, in my role working with teenagers in Year of Our Lord 2023. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, it is, and it's been heavy this week thinking about this passage and thinking about Man, there's a lot of people who post things like Phoebe Bridgers did, but they do it on Discord, and they attack other grade 8 kids, and it's really sad. Um, but one thing that we do when things go wrong, we have this thing called restorative justice. And it's a, in many ways how we respond when things go wrong. It's just a set of questions. We say, what happened? What were you thinking at the time? What have you thought about since? What can you do to make things right? How do you think the person's been impacted? And it's all these non-judgmental questions. And I, and I see the character of God in that. And I see God doing that to me. And I see God doing that to us. He just says, where are you? He doesn't need to ask that question, right? Where are you? But he asks the question because, and not to guilt trip you, but he's just asking, where are you? And I think about all we've done here at Reality of like, being a centered said church is your directional arrow, which I always think of like it's coming out like in that movie, it, you know, this arrow that's going directing towards the cross. Like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you 
in this story. Um, It really should overwhelm us, I think, in this passage. The character of God is like this slow, gentle, powerful approach of Yahweh Elohim. He walks towards us. He asks us questions. And he seeks to restore, to bring us back to himself. That is his mission. Temper Longman and Scott McKnight suggest that we ought to note how God is clearly being described here in human terms. That's important for the season of Christmas. Yalu Elohim is walking. God has condescended to human understanding by describing himself. He's describing himself in these terms. And Bruce Walkie would put it this way. The gardener has not abandoned his garden. And so it's from this humble place that God is speaking to us. He knows what's going on, and he still shows up. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. This is the part of the sermon I have to fill my quota of long quotes for the reality pulpit. God is speaking to us. He's speaking to us individually. He's speaking to us about where we are, why we are there, how we ever got there, how we can come from there. That's its whole message of the Bible. In other words, its interest is in us, in our problems, our pains, our perplexities, our troubles, and all the things that tend to make life just so difficult. God is saying here, I know you and I love you. And so we just can pick up on this great foreshadowing and we'll kind of close here. But this God does come again. And he did come again. And he did come to walk among us. And he came naked. (laughs) He came naked. He came vulnerably as a baby. And he did that to bring an end to the shame that is associated with our nakedness. And there were trees in his life. And instead of hiding behind a tree, Jesus, the true and better Adam, as we say, he didn't hide behind the tree. Instead, he actually did the opposite. He fully exposed himself on the tree. Instead of blaming others, as we see Adam and Eve doing, he's the one that on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he actually did hide. And he was successful where we weren't successful. He was hidden. He was separated by God. For three days, he was completely hidden. But when he rose, he rose in power, eternalizing his position as the light of the world. And we read in Matthew chapter 4, the people live in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, which is us, a light has dawned. So church, uh, don't take this season lightly, of course. Embrace the darkness, take inventory fearlessly, and do so as people that have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, um, as Laura prayed earlier, I would ask that by your Spirit we would come to be acquainted and familiar with the darkness, with the shadow of death. But Lord, by your power and your mercy, would you point us to the clear and not vanishing point of the hope we have in a little baby 
as we look forward to the birth of Jesus Christ, a baby who came to be the light of the world and the light that could not be overcome by darkness. Amen.